I'm seeing some new faces today, and just a word of introduction, my name is Matt Hewitt, and uh, I'm new to the area, but not new to Jeff and Jody. Uh, I've known them for uh, quite a long while, and uh, so pleased to have the opportunity to to be in Bryson with them, and to uh, be here in this community, The Grove. You guys truly are um, a remarkable people, and uh, I'm excited about what we're speaking about today as we continue this uh, talk on Jesus and feminism, womanism, and what that intends and what that means. And I understand that this uh, could appear to be uh, a statement or a series or a talk that is uh, uh, politically charged. Um, But let me just say this. What we're going to talk about during this series is something the church should have been talking for a long, long time. And so I ask you uh, to do what is difficult for me, uh, and I know that when I ask that of you, is to come with eyes to see and ears to hear. Um, Anything I share or Jeff or Jody or Debbie or anyone stands behind this pulpit or any pulpit share should not be seen as just writ authority but rather the beginning of a dialogue that we have as a community and that you yourself have with God and the Holy Spirit. So whatever you're hearing from here, there's no agenda other than to let the gospel of Jesus be made proclaimed to us all. We all encounter that different ways, and there's all different things that are going to challenge and hit us in different uh, sections. And as Jeff talked about last week, blind spots. So all I ask is that you challenge what I'm saying today. You wrestle with it. You think about it. You wrestle with the scriptures. Uh, But you've got to work out your own faith with fear and trembling. And uh, I just say, come come to Jesus. uh, Come to the Holy Spirit and allow them to do the work in you and in us. Today, what I'd like to do is to kind of uh, break this into three parts. The first thing I want to do is I want to take a general overview, a drive-by, if you will, uh, look at the Bible and women. What has it looked like? Now, Jeff mentioned some of the issues uh, that face women in our society today and what Jesus has to say to that. Uh, He also mentioned some of the things and background of how women were viewed in the Old Testament and some things that we have to wrestle with when uh, we want to say we have a biblical view uh, of women. I I put air quotes there for those who are going to be listening later because biblical is a really bad adjective. Okay, let me just, this, um, this is an aside. I wasn't planning on this. When we say biblical, what we mean is proper or correct. But there are very few things in the Bible that are univocal, where it stands with everything. So the truth that we have to deal with, as Jeff mentioned last week, is that in the Old Testament, women were less than men. In fact, in many ways, they were just possessions. Now, we're going to take a look at some exceptions to that in the Old Testament and to the New Testament today. And we're going to look how Jesus radically altered that. And I hope we can all agree that if we're followers of Jesus, then Jesus is our first and foremost lens through which we see Daddy God, Abba Father. 
We've got to see God as Jesus sees God, and hence we have to see the world as Jesus saw the world. So we're going to talk about the Bible and women, and then I want to talk about two stories in the life of Jesus. One is I want to look at the story of Jesus and the Canaanite woman, also known as the Syrophoenician woman. And then I want to look at a story of Jesus and Mary of Bethany. So we're going to spend a lot of time today on that. Um, I ask for your patience. I'm going to be going pretty rapidly through this. I have a lot of background notes. If you want to just email me and ask for them later to fill in some gaps, if you feel that there were some or send me some questions, I'd be more than happy to discuss that with you. We are going to draw heavily today from a book by Scott McKnight. It's called The Blue Parakeet. Rethinking how you read the Bible, and it's one of many sources that we could have drawn from. But I understand that several of you went through this book last year or the year before that in your theology nights. And so I thought it would be a good reminder and a good refresher of what you as a community have already gone through. So that's the plan today. The plan is to take an overview, a drive-by look at Bible and women. We're going to look at the story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician or Canaanite woman. And we're going to look at the story of Jesus and the Mary of Bethany. So let's begin. If you'll join your hearts with me in a prayer. We are children of another world. For the mystery of the text and for the history of eyes to see and ears to hear the text, we give you thanks. Our eyes are scaled and our ears are uncircumcised. And we are children of another world. We pray for the gift of perception. We pray for energy and courage. That we may not leave the text until we wrench your blessing from it. Amen. So what did the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, how did it view scripture? Well, sadly to say, one of the most ambiguous uh, prayers that was offered during the time of Christ and before was uh, one where Rabbi Judah would say to the people uh, that a man must recite these three benedictions a day. Praise be thou, O Lord, who did not make me a Gentile. In other words, it's good that I'm a Jew. I'm one of the chosen. That's sad for a lot of us until we come to Jesus. Praise be thou, O Lord, who did not make me a boar, not a beast. I'm a rational, enlightened human being, and thus I'm the pinnacle of creation. And praise be thou, O Lord, who did not make me a woman. Now, there's lots of implications behind this. This is not perhaps as overtly sexist as we would think it might be. But it did call to attention the fact that women were not able to enjoy the full uh, blessings and spiritual rituals uh, that men were. They just weren't allowed. They were uh, considered unclean a large period of their lives. They were considered uh, less than a man. They were not able to teach. They were not able to do the things that the standard male was able to do. And thus they had less intimacy afforded to them from God, at least in the view of this. Catherine Clark Kroger, beginning her article on women in the Dictionary of the Bible, published by InterVarsity Press, Good Evangelical Bible, 
uh, press. In the main, history is written by, for, and about men. David Scholler says this in his The Dictionary of the Bible in very general terms. Jesus lived in a sociocultural context, the Jewish context and the larger Greco-Roman society, in which the male view of women was usually negative and the place of women was understood to be limited, for the most part, to the domestic roles of wife and mother. Here's a famous statement made by the Jewish historian Josephus, a contemporary of Jesus and the Apostle Paul. The woman, Josephus informs his audience, says the law is in all things in fear to the man. So what do we do when we are looking at the role of women in Scripture? See, the question we need to ask today is this, and this question strikes to the heart of how we read the Bible. Do we seek to retrieve the cultural world and those cultural expressions? Or do we live the same gospel in a different way in a different day? Is this a return and retrieve it all? A return and retrieve some? A reading of the Bible through tradition? Or a reading of the Bible with tradition? McKnight argues that this is the case, that when we read the Bible, we don't read it necessarily always through tradition, but we read it with tradition. And that there are times, as we've seen throughout Scripture, that the tradition itself needs to be challenged. We see that in the life of Jesus. We see that in the Apostle Paul. We see that in the early church, that the traditions that they had grown up as Jews, as followers of Yahweh and the chosen and elect, had to be dealt with as their view of God became clearer. So we have three basic options here. The first of these is what we call the hard patriarchy view. And this believes that the biblical context and its teachings are more or less both God's original and permanent design. A woman's responsibility is to glorify God, to love God, to love others, and to love her husband and her children. That's all good. That is, if she's married and has children, exceptions duly noted, more narrowly now she must submit to her husband in all things. She must submit to male leadership in the church in all things. And she should also not find her way into leadership in society. For whatever reason, God ordained males to be leaders. Now, this hard patriarchy view shapes life by a perception of the divine order in gender and in roles. It believes that these roles will create peace. God's purpose in ordering marriage is peace. One takes the husband's role, one takes the wife's role, one in guiding, one in supporting. If both had the very same roles, there'd be no peace. And although this isn't the largest view out there, this is one espoused by a lot of people. It's kind of what I grew up in. It conjures up visions of women with no makeup and hair in their buns and homemade dresses. Sister Mandy... Remember you, Sister Mandy. You were a great woman. Sister Mandy was one of the greatest preachers I've ever heard in my life. She was only allowed to preach to other women in the children's church. Because for some reason, she was a woman. 
she didn't get to speak. But there are also other people in today's culture who feel this way. People with bedazzled jeans and hip haircuts and who talk about the machismo Jesus. The God of the fighter, the God of the warrior, the MMA Jesus. And they're big and they build big ministries. And they would view this hard patriarchy view. Or a view similar to it, the soft patriarchy view. This believes that the Bible, uh, the context is cultural, but that the principles are permanent. We're called to find a living analogy in our Western 21st century context to the teachings of the Bible, including the teaching of gender roles. Woman's responsibility is to glorify God, to love God, to love others, and if married, to love her husband and her children, if there are any. More narrowly now, while affirming the importance of submission to gender and roles, this view frees the woman to do more than the hard patriarchy view does. She can work outside the home in any manner for which she is qualified and competent, always, though, with her primary role being wife and mother. She can participate in an appropriate female manner at church, but this would not include being senior pastor or teaching or leading men in any way. That's the second view, much more common. And then we have the third view, the view that I would suggest you take a hard look at, uh, the one I personally subscribe to. You'll have to do that work yourself. But this mutuality view taps into the oneness, otherness, oneness theme deeply. In other words, we once were one with one another and with God, and then through sin we became othered. But through Jesus and his salvific work and his resurrection that we're going to celebrate in a couple of weeks, we now have oneness again. And this, it believes a woman's responsibility is to glorify God, to love God, to love others. And again, if married and if with children, to love her husband and her children. More narrowly, a mutuality view liberates women from the tradition because it believes the biblical context is cultural. And that even the biblical teachings reflect the culture. Even more importantly, it knows that reading the Bible through a long-established church tradition needs to be challenged. Instead of seeking to impose that culture... And those culturally shaped teachings on woman, a world, remember, where a woman is not fully a male. A woman, according to the Old Testament, is possession and given by one man to another. A, a, a worldview where, as Jeff mentioned, uh, according to the Levitical Code last uh, week, that if a man were to rape a woman, he pays a fee and she's now his wife. This view says that we summon Christians to the Bible again, but this time not to totally reenact, retrieve it all and bring it into the here and now, but to understand that some 2,000 years living with the risen Christ and the Holy Spirit has surely taught us to be more human and have a clearer view of God and one another. It knows the story of the Bible is one in which Jesus Christ makes men and women one again in Christ And in marriage and in conscious dependence on the spirit in the context of a community of faith that seeks to live out that oneness. It gives to women the freedom to discern what God has called them to do, whatever it might be, including preaching and teaching and leading in the church. These conclusions 
are encouraged by the exceptions of the Bible, and there are more than most realize, and by passages like the mutuality or equality principle in Galatians 3.28, to explore God's gifts to women. Moreover, the ongoing guidance of the Spirit may lead women into ministries that break down the traditions. So let's look at some biblical evidence, some exceptions to the cultural, societal context of the day and the period in which these scriptures were written. And let's see some exceptions that we can learn from. What did women do in the Old Testament? Well, let's take three examples here. Miriam, spiritual leader. Miriam was Moses and Aaron's sister. She was one-third of Israel's triumvirate of leadership. Moses was lawgiver. Aaron was priest and Miriam was the prophetess. When the children of Israel escaped the clutches of Pharaoh, it was Miriam who led the Israelites into worship with these inspired words. Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. The song of Moses found now at Exodus 15 verses 1 through 18 may well have been composed under inspiration by Miriam. And other women are found singing within the pages of the Bible story. Women like Deborah and Hannah and Mary. Singing was connected to the gift of prophecy in the Bible. When a later prophet Micah spoke of Israel's deliverance, he saw three leaders in Israel. I brought you out of Egypt, Mike uh, 6 and 4 says. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. A very notable exception. A second exception that we see in the Old Testament is Deborah, who is our presidential leader. Like Miriam, Deborah was a prophet. Judges 4 and 4. Now, Deborah, a prophet of the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. When the Bible says she was leading Israel, it uses the term for the judge of Israel. She was to her generation what Moses was to his The word translated judged in that verse, shapat, combines the ideas of national leadership, judicial decisions, and political military savior. If we ask what did women do and we ask this question of Deborah, we learn that women could speak for God as a prophet, render decisions in a law court as a judge, exercise leadership over the entire spiritual social Israel, and be a military commander who brought Israel to victory. She led the nation in other ways, in other terms, spiritually, musically, legally, politically, and militarily. And let's not pretend our tasks were social and secular. Deborah was a woman leader of the entire people of God. Thus says the Bible. Huldah was a third person. She was a prophet above the prophets. This is a great story. It's found in 2 Kings 22. The story is that when King Josiah is informed of the discovery of the long-lost Torah in the temple, a certain Shapen reads a text to Josiah. He falls apart in godly repentance and needs a discernment. What should he do? To which of God's prophets shall he send word to consult? Here are his options. He can consult Jeremiah. You may know him. He has a, a book in the Bible. Zephaniah, same. Nahum, Habakkuk, or Huldah. The first four, again, have books in Israel's collection, collections of prophets. But he chose the female prophet Huldah above the rest. She's not chosen because there were no men available. 
She's chosen because she is truly exceptional among the prophets. So she confirms that the scroll is indeed God's Torah. And this, in a very real sense, authorizes this text as Israel's scriptures for his time on. Furthermore, prophetess Huldah, unafraid to tell the truth, informs Josiah that indeed God's wrath is against the disobedient of his nation. But she adds, because the king has humbled himself before God, he will be gathered to his ancestors in peace. So from just this brief sketch, we can see these things. What did women do in the Old Testament? They spoke for God. They led the nation in every department. They sanctioned scripture and they guided nations back to the path of righteousness. That's the Old Testament. What does the New Testament say? That's closer, right? We have to give a little more weight to the New Testament than we do to the Old Because Jesus is the fulfillment. The spirit is brought about by his death and resurrection. The church is inaugurated. And thus we are a people who don't have a God who's high up on the mountaintops. But we have a God, Holy Spirit, that lives within each of us as we follow Christ. So what did women do? Let's look at a few of them. Mary. A woman of influence. Now listen, Scott McKnight, uh, I've gotten to know a little bit over the years. And here's the deal. He's written a book on Mary, the mother of Jesus. He says there's nothing Protestants aren't more scared of than giving credence and glory and um, street cred to Mary. (laughs) Because we're afraid we'll be Catholic if we do. (laughs) He wrote a book on this and he can't get anybody to read it, he says. (laughs) He's one of the few Protestant Mariologists. Why is it? Why is it that the very mother of Jesus gets so little credit amongst us? Maybe we need to see that we read the Bible through ears and eyes that have been shaped by our culture. Even sometimes the culture that our Protestant church gives to us. Well, to begin with, Mary was the mother of the Messiah, and that's no small vocation. (laughs) She was instrumental in the formation of Jesus as he matured. Remember, Jesus didn't spring out of her womb as baby genius. Jesus wasn't an X-man with mutant powers. The Bible's very clear that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Jesus is a dynamic God, a God who learns and grows because he's become incarnated as a human and shares that with us. We can talk more about that later. Furthermore, if the early tradition is accurate, Mary was a widow. So when we look at her influence in the early church, we're looking at a widow. And her influence in the New Testament is seen in at least three ways. She emerges as one of the greatest trainers of Jesus, his brother James, and she was critical in the formation of our Gospels. Luke 1, 46 through 55, I'll read it fast, so hang on, buckle up. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful for the humble state of his servant 
From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from the thrones, but have lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors this is called mary's magnificat and the themes of this song are clear justice for the poor and marginalized judgment on the oppressors holiness and god's faithfulness to his covenantal promises you see her son james opens up his letter with these words believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant its blossoms fail its beauty is destroyed in the same way the rich will fade away even while they go about their business You see, this prediction or reversal of fortunes is a central theme to Mary's prayer and a central theme in Jesus' own teachings. It also punctuates nearly every chapter of James' book. Mary was a great influencer on our faith. Moving through these others way too quickly just to whet your appetite. Again, for a more in-depth study, you can look at Scott McKnight's book here. Junia was an apostle over the apostles. If you like Kindle readers, there's a short book. Junia uh, is not alone. You should check it out. But basically, here we go. It says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ Before I was. Now here we have a couple of things. Junia is an outstanding woman. An outstanding prophet. What we don't realize. When we read our Bibles. And for those of you who want to say. That the Bible just kind of fell from heaven. And it's ready. And it's good to go as it is. And we don't have to struggle with it. And even the process by which it was made. Is this simple fact. Junia is a female name. It's recorded all throughout history. Andronicus is named with her, and we're pretty sure from the context that this is her husband. However, some several hundred years ago, when translators of many of the English versions of the Bible came upon this, their theology, their contextualized minds, their culture would not allow them to believe that a woman could be an apostle. So without any other reason, with no no appeal to the uh, ancient world, because the word Junius was not found anywhere in the time, in the period that the Bible was written, they changed Junia to Junius, basically masculating This wonderful, outstanding lady of the faith. And unless you read Greek, and unless you knew the different pieces behind the Greek, you just read in your Bible, Junius, that this was a male. Modern translations have seen that error, and they have corrected it, and returned Junia back to her female position. But the truth of the matter is, 
is we don't read in isolation. We read in community, and sometimes community is given to us. Does this mean we can't trust the Bible? No, it doesn't mean we can't trust the Bible. It does mean that we need to arm ourselves and to think through things. And when someone does bring up something, like someone brought up to me before, hey, did you know Junius was actually Junia? Then that means you need to look into it. Because what if that is right? Then that means that there was a woman who was an apostle. And she was an outstanding apostle. To be an apostle is something great. But to be outstanding among the apostles, just think what a wonderful song of praise that is. They were outstanding on the basis of their works and virtuous actions. Indeed, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been. She was even deemed worthy of the title of apostle. Priscilla, you can look more into her and the book of Acts, but Priscilla was a teacher of scripture and theology. And Priscilla and her husband Aquila were teachers, and they were uh, teachers of scripture and theology. It's told to us that Priscilla and Aquila explained to Apollos, one of Paul's contemporaries, a wonderful teacher, the way of God more adequately. They worked together. That This wasn't just Aquila with uh, Priscilla sitting there serving coffee. This was the two of them together functioning as a powerhouse of missions and ministry. In fact, over and over again in the scriptures, we see that her name is mentioned first, which often would give uh, the fact and the idea that it was she who was the main teacher. Then we have Phoebe, deacon and benefactor, Romans 16, 1 through 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. That's what Paul's saying. So she's called a deacon. It's the same word in the New Testament, whether the person is a man or a woman. It means leader in the church. Doug Moo, a New Testament scholar, describes this. It's likely that deacons were charged with visitation of the sick, poor, relief, and perhaps financial oversight. Others think more is involved, and that is the word that deacon describes an official minister of God's word. Not only was Phoebe these things, but she was also significant. When Paul asked the church at Rome to receive her, he surely had in his mind that they were to roll out the red carpet of hospitality the way that they do for saints. But it's also possible that Phoebe, a benefactor, a wealthy patron of Paul's ministry, bringing the gospel to the Roman Empire, was responsible of getting the right letter to the right people. See, when someone sent, when an apostle sent someone with the letter to the church, which is what Phoebe did, they also were the interpreter of that letter to the church. So chances are very high that Phoebe was the very first commentator on the book of Romans. That she probably stayed for days, if not weeks, to explain to them what Paul meant because she was Paul's follower and disciple. But also, this was something that wasn't entrusted to just any person, but a person of great intellect. Also, it appears that Phoebe was a benefactor in the sense that she was wealthy and that she helped uh, bankroll Paul's mission to the Romans. So we see Phoebe as a deacon and a benefactor. So we see here three women in the Old Testament and now four women in the New Testament who had really important roles. 
This is not the roles that say someone is less than men. And we today draw a lot of our theological understanding that this was God's intention from the beginning. Here's an interesting thing. I was taught one time, uh, and I'll try to be mindful of this, uh, is that the human brain can only absorb what the human tush can can take. <laughs> so let me just say this to you. We, we got about 10 more minutes here or so. If you need to stand up at any point and stretch, you're not going to distract me or anybody. Just stand up, stretch, and sit back down, if you will. But the second thing is this. You can only take people as far as they can go. There's a lot of things that are biblical that we don't see as God-ordained or pleasing to God. You see, the argument right here in this county, much like the county of Walker County in Alabama where I lived at, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, the fact that Paul wrote to slaves... Obey your master. The fact that there's a book called Philemon. It's written to Ones- about Onesimus. And Philemon is a owner of Onesimus. And Paul says, hey, you know, treat him like a brother. Paul didn't try to right every societal wrong. A lot of what we have in the New Testament is the seeds of God's revolution that weren't able to make their way fully because to have declared that right away would have lost people. When you say something to someone so hard to hear, they can't hear it. So sometimes we have to take steps. And that's the same way with the gospel, unfortunately. There are blinding moments like Saul getting kicked off of his donkey and becoming Paul. There are moments where everything changes, but more often than not, society, culture, a church, a family, an individual, you have to take steps. And this is what's happening here. These exceptions were not meant to be exceptions. They were meant to be the norm. When we read of Paul... And that sermon in Acts on Pentecost, it says in the words of the prophet Joel, the spirit of God has been poured out on all flesh. That men and women, that sons and daughters will speak for God. Or when Paul says in Christ, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. That's meant Not to be the exception, but to be the norm. We have to take that into consideration. So here's some exceptions that we hope are becoming the norm. And we can see how Jesus validates those. Now, get ready. Jesus and a different kind of student. We're shifting now to two specific encounters. In Matthew 15, we have the story of the faith of a Canaanite woman. And Jesus went away from there. 
and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. He ignored her. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She came before him. She knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. You hear that? Yes, Lord, she said. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. I read very widely. And so I read a lot of people that I agree with. And I read a lot of people I disagree with on faith matters. There are some people that when I read with what they have to say, it's not a simple put them in the uh, I'm not going to listen to you category or I'm going to listen to you category. There are some people who give me a new thought that makes me chew on it, that perturbs me in my spirit, not in a negative way, but in a way that we're supposed to meditate on. You know, the word meditate on on his law day and night that that is like a that story conjures up the image of a dog gnawing on a bone you know i got like a eight pound dog that feels like it's 800 pounds and for a joke i'll give it one of those big bones from the grocery store and it will just work that thing over for days and don't come near it reach down you'll lose it it'll be a nub Roxy thinks she's a lion. She's going to eat that hand. But she's making these noises. You ever heard a dog eating? You can see the same thing if you just go down to the barbecue wheel wagon place and see some dudes hitting those ribs, right? It's a joy. Get every piece out of it. And there's this guy named David Henson who's a professor who writes on this particular piece. He says, when confronted with the Gentile woman in this story, he explains that his message and ministry are for Israelites only. A comment of ethnic exclusion and prejudice that calls to mind a similar refrain from a more modern time. Whites only. That reverberated through the South not too long ago. It wouldn't be fair, Jesus explains, to take the banquet prepared for his people, the children, the humans, and give it to the Gentiles, the dogs, the less human. He says a number of scholars whistle past this ghastly put down by explaining that perhaps Jesus called the woman a dog with a twinkle in his eyes. As if he winked at her knowingly in order to say he didn't really believe her to be a dog like she was in on the joke when he uttered this well-known racial slur. Others emphasize that the word for dog that Jesus uses isn't the typical strong language usually associated with this racial slur. They explain that the word Jesus used takes the diminutive form, implying perhaps a beloved pet or a lap dog, and therefore takes the sting out of the slur. 
He says, of course, white Americans have their own diminutive versions of racial slurs to imply endearment. And dominant and oppressive cultures have a long history of assaging their own latent guilt with terms of endearment for those they are abusing. Still unconvinced, add the word little to any ethnic or sexist slur. Do these diminutive forms, even if they are used with apparent affection, soften the sting? Clearly not. Others argue that Jesus is using this exchange to teach his disciples about the inclusivity of God's reign. And there's textual evidence for that too. But that simply further dehumanizes the woman, not only referring to her with a slur, but also using her little more as a prop or an object lesson. So what are we to make of this exchange? Where in this story exactly is the good news? This is the great lesson of the Syrophoenician woman. It teaches us the dynamics of power and prejudice and how, this is his words, David's, even the best of humanity, the incarnation himself, can get caught up in systems of oppression and a culture of supremacy. Like many of us today, Jesus would have been reared in a prejudiced worldview. Jesus, given his embedded culture, could not be fully colorblind or ethnicity blind, and neither can we. But being caught in that system, being caught in that systematic evil, does not make one a racist. It's what happens in the moments afterward that makes the determination. How we respond when confronted with the narrative of the oppressed or the other reveals who we truly are. Do we continue to ignore or deny these realities of oppression? Do we mock them? Do we continue to brush them aside with dismissive prejudice as dogs? Or do we, like Jesus, do the miraculous and listen to them, be changed By the power of the truth that they are speaking. You see, when this woman in boldness confronts Jesus and his slur, Jesus listens and he hears. And it is the only time recorded in the Gospels in which Jesus changes his mind. But even the dogs get table scraps, she replies, a subtle calling out of his dehumanizing language. And Jesus is astounded, the holy wind knocked out of him. A moment before, she was but a dog to him, and the next, the scales from his eyes. And he listens to her and sees her for what she truly is, a woman of great faith. You see, Jesus models for us. Whether Jesus was just modeling this for us, or Jesus actually had this situation, you make the determination. But Jesus does the most difficult thing for those of us who are born into prejudice and power. I'm speaking to us white folk, and I'm speaking to us as men. He listens, and he allows himself to be fundamentally changed. You see, when it happens, when we finally have the ears to hear, we will never be the same. We'll never be able to listen to the lies of the dominant oppressors the same way again. So in the end, Jesus' exchange offers us perhaps the most powerful story for white men like me who seek to stand against oppression, both ethnicity-wise and gender-wise. It compels us to listen to the narratives of the oppressed we devalue implicitly. I wasn't asked to be born into a family, into a culture that devalued African Americans. I didn't ask to be born into a world that devalued women. But somehow, I thought in my little mind that people of other color weren't as good as me. That was a reality that I had to come to, that that had seeped into my consciousness without anyone telling me anything explicitly, but implicitly, I had to understand 
That my system was cultured. The little jokes here and there that my family would say. That people at school would say. The way that we subjugated the African Americans in my community. To just outside the city limits. So that the firefighters and so that the cops didn't have to go quite as fast to them. Not only that. I didn't realize that I didn't value women. I can remember the first time. When I shook my empty tea glass to my wife, expecting her to come fill it up, and her saying, <laughs> What just happened? That's not going to happen here. <laughs> but that's what we did. I remember the next Sunday going to Nana's, where the women served the men, the women cleaned up, the men sat and watched football or shotguns. And I remember telling the ladies before everybody left the table, I had just made the move from the kids' table to the adult table. One of my uncles wasn't there. And so, (laughs) even though I was in college, that happened. And I remember saying, ladies, y'all go sit and relax. Me and the fellas are going to clean this. And I remember the looks they gave me. I didn't ask for any of that. But I have to be open to hear that this culture and this society... Even the culture and society that the church has often given me has shaped me in ways that I'm blinded to. And I have to hear the voice of Jesus saying, no. Acknowledge that the truth is, is that according to the prophet of Joel and the sermon of Peter, God has poured his spirit out on all flesh. We got to get that, guys, if we're ever going to be one. The second story, I'll be really quick with this, is that was kind of at the beginning of Jesus' story. But later on, one of the last things we see with the story is Jesus and a special moment he had with Mary of Bethany. You know Mary and Martha in that story, and you've often heard it. I'll read it here. Now, as they went their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him to her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Man, how many times have you heard a sermon on this that this is about being busy and not busy? That the true worshipers sit at Jesus' feet, and that's just what they do. And too many times we try to do too much work and please the Savior when we should just be sitting with the Savior. Well, again, this is one of those stories I've heard a thousand times. But I did not realize that according to many, many scholars, the scholars I trust, when it says that Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, that wasn't. Serving Jesus, that wasn't just relishing in his storytelling, but that any first century Jew who would have heard that would have realized that she was an authorized disciple of Jesus, the same as any man. That Jesus, and he does this time and time in the scriptures, you looked at one last week, we're going to look at more in the next couple of weeks. Jesus radically flips the script on how men are to interact with women and how to value them 
That their value doesn't come from a man's affirmation, but it comes from the affirmation that women are created in the image of God in the same way that men are. So she sits there, and Mary Clement says this, Mary Bethany joined herself as a disciple to Jesus. She sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching in the attitude of a Torah scholar with a rabbi. She won approval from Jesus in the act of repudiating a woman's role. In John 12 and 3, describing her action of anointing the feet of Jesus with costly perfume and wiping them with her hair, this represented her as a disciple of Jesus, the teacher, a role generally forbidden to Jewish women. To wash the feet of one's master was an act of serving by disciple. Jesus at the Last Supper performed for his disciples an act that normally would have been performed by a devoted disciple. Not a woman, a devoted disciple. It is also the act which Jesus commanded his disciples to perform in imitation of himself. And her act is connected by Jesus himself to his burial and his imminent departure. See, here's the deal. When we want to look at the role of women in scripture, it's a very nuanced thing. We see exceptions to the societal culture standards of the day, a patriarchy where women did not count. And we see women used by God in spite of that to be mighty, mighty leaders. Not only that, when we get to the New Testament, we see that women are afforded the same roles. And listen, I understand. I'm not... I know what Paul says. I know what his passages say. And I just want to tell you now is not the day. But if you ever want to sit down and us to talk about all the nuances in the societal cultural context of what Paul was saying when he said submit to your husbands. Remember he also said love your wives as Christ loved the church. Okay. I think that's the bigger issue there. And also one other thing in that same household code. Right? There's the word to husbands. There's the word to women. There's the word to children. And what's the fourth example in that household code? That household code also says slaves obey your masters. So if we're going to take one portion of that household code, then we need to reaffirm slavery again. Or we need to understand that it was Paul speaking to a specific culture in a specific time. And we don't read necessarily through that like today is then, but we definitely read with it and allow it to inform us and to wrestle with it. So we see these exceptions to their day and time, but here's the deal. After 2,000 years of living with the risen Christ, surely we understand God better today than we did. Surely. And before you want to go back and say, we don't get it the same that Acts gets it, read into Acts. In chapter 5, it starts falling apart for them right away. People start getting struck, stricken dead by the Holy Spirit, all right? They were jacked up, fighting over which widows gets food. Everybody wants to go back to the Old Testament or to the New Testament. I want to say God's doing a wondrous new thing and we are being shaped further by the Holy Spirit into what it means to be a community of atonement or community of shalom, a community of harmony and peace. So what are we going to do with this today? What are we going to do with Jesus' Syrophoenician encounter? And what are we going to do with Jesus? A different kind of teacher He learns from women and he recognizes women's validity. Here's what I ask of you today. 
these passages compel us to listen to the narrative of the oppressed that we devalue implicitly. It requires us to listen to our own prejudices. It asks us to do the unthinkable, to own our culture's hate, and to be changed by the realities of the marginalized as viewed through the eyes of Jesus and of the Holy Scriptures. Sure, next week won't be as heavy. (laughs) Can't promise that. (laughs) I want to speak for Jeff. Can we do this today? If you're a woman in this room who has fallen to the trap of thinking of yourself less than because of your gender, Can you please hear fresh these words of Jesus? The woman who was the woman at the well, who was the first evangelist as far as we can tell in the New Testament. Mary, the mother of Jesus, who formed and taught the Messiah and his brother, who was the first leader of the church. Can you see Jesus' interaction with these two women? And can you please at least allow the thought that you are in no way less, but you are formed and fashioned in the image of God, beautifully and wonderfully made? Can you understand that you're called as women To be full followers of Jesus, actualized. Your place? Your place, according to this, is at Jesus' feet. As caring mother or wife, as disciple and benefactor, as theological teacher. And if you're a man in this room, can you please... Just allow yourself to open yourself to the possibility that if you've been taught that women are less or that you're their white knight coming to save them from the wicked witch or whoever, why why does the prince never save the princess from a wicked king? Why is it always another wicked woman? Can you say to yourself, you know what? I don't know if I buy this or not. But I'm going to open my eyes and I'm going to open my ears to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to let God do some stuff with me. And can you do this? Can you listen to a woman this week? Can you stare into your wife's eyes turn off the phone and the TV for 15 minutes. Simply say, what do you think about this? What has been your experience? How do you view yourself? How do you view the Bible? What do you think the roles of women in our society and in our church should be? And one more thing.
And I realize I might be pushing this too far if I haven't already. Guys, can you do some dishes this week? I'm just saying. (laughs) Can we stand to our feet? Let's close out. God, I love you and I thank you for this community. And I thank you that you have uh, committed to shaping us to be the people you would have us to be. And, and, and Lord, I stand in, in, uh, uh, in, in, in humility, say that, that I'm still that guy who shakes his glass from time to time. And it's still difficult for me at times to, to ask the women in my life their opinion. So much easier to go to the guy next to me. I pray that you would change me as it appeals to seeing the marginalized as the oppressed. God, it's a weird thing to be a white dude in this culture and society. But if anybody had rights, you did them and you didn't cling to them. And you found a way. You found a way to be with not take the whole deal of I'm going to save somebody or Messiah. You were Messiah. You had every opportunity and every power to just blow things up. You could have called angels down. You could have thrown yourself from the temple. You could have done all those things. And the way you chose to show us power was by sacrifice. Even the sacrifice on a cross. So I pray that for all of us today, you help us to see who we are in you. For the greatest task as followers of Jesus is this, to know who we are in Jesus and to know who Jesus is in us. To that holy task, may you give us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us and equip us for the journey. Thank you. Amen.